Morning. This past week, Jordan asked me how long the sermon was going to be because he has to get on a plane to Zimbabwe for a mission trip, right, to advance and to help and to minister, uh, further advance the kingdom of Christ. That's how you get a shorter sermon. So if you're looking for one, that's how you do it. So uh, keep that in mind. Okay. If you want me to preach, let's go into the mission field. There we are. We're opening the first chapter of Genesis and going into it this morning, Genesis 1, 1 through 5, entitled The Source of Light and Life. Let me open up by reading. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Last week, if you were here, you remember we, we began our series with an introduction sermon to the book of Genesis. And to reiterate or fill in the blank for those who weren't here, the three main themes that we will continue to draw on each week will be creation, culture, and Christ, which is also the title of our entire series throughout Genesis. That doesn't mean there aren't other topics in Genesis we won't be working through. We will be working through other topics and other themes of Genesis. It, it doesn't mean either that every sermon is just going to emphasize on these three key topics. But the title of our series, Creation, Culture, and Christ, is meant to serve as a reminder that this is the heart of our series. As for today... We're going to take a look at the first day of creation and focus on three specific issues. The different biblical views of the age of the universe, emphasis on biblical views. Number two, the one who created the universe. And then finally, the complexity of day one's passage, which says, light came, God said, let there be light. And there was light. But that's before day four, where the luminaries came. The sun, the moon, and the stars. So if the sun and the moon did not exist on day one, where did it come from? Lord willing, in response to those three points I just said, we'll be able to see that God is the source of all light and life, and how the implications of that reality are applicable for us today. Point number one, by faith we understand, by faith we understand how the earth was created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. There's many theories about the age of the universe and the age of the earth. I'm certain you're aware of this. 
Therefore, for time's sake, I'm only going to briefly summarize some of the major views about creation. And when I say major views, I'm referring to those who hold to a biblical position in their understanding that everything in the universe was created by God. So each position believes that. Even though they may differ on their belief on the age of the earth, each view I will discuss this morning believes in the beginning God created. And that'll be important even for part of our application. So for time's sake, I'm not going to go into any detail about theistic evolution, Darwinism, macroevolution. I'm not going to go into, you know, their arguments and then try to rebut those. Reason being that this isn't a debate. It's not a lecture between uh, evolution, Big Bang, first creation. It's a sermon. It's expounding on God's word. But it doesn't mean that those issues aren't important. They are important. As someone who previously worked with countless college students who professed to be Christians, or at least professed, past tense, to be Christians, knowing that I was a pastor or a bivocational pastor or a Christian myself, the number one reason they would come to me and tell me that they struggle with their faith, remember these are college students, is because they are not prepared to defend creationism, as in God created the earth. And because they are unprepared, when they enter universities, the bombardment that they are hit with by their atheist friends and atheist professors makes them begin to question the entirety of their faith. It's the number one reason. But I want to notice something about their uncertainty. Precisely what the challenge which leads them to question their faith. That's the observation. Because the challenge that leads them to question, it, it's not their professor outspokenly denying the virgin birth of Christ. It's not their professors denying that Christ died for sins or rose from the dead. That's not what challenges their faith. That's not what leads them to begin to doubt their faith. The challenge which leads them to begin to doubt and deconstruct their faith is the challenge against God being the creator of the heavens and the earth. And if you can disrupt that belief, you don't have to attempt to deconstruct the rest. Because what happens is the students just begin to do it on their own. And I've been involved with Many conversations where young adults, young college students have done just that. So that means, yes, although we're not going to just discuss it as a lecture today, we do have to take the topic seriously. As a side note, if you're looking for Christian scientists and mathematicians who are much more brilliant than myself, who are experts in their fields of being a creationist, we, we, elders, anyone here, would love to help provide more resources for that. So email me, see me after. I will fill 
your box up with guys that I don't understand what they're talking about, but I'm like, sounds right. As for today, the three biblical positions I want to address are the, are the gap theory, the old earth, old earthers, old earth creationism, and young earth. What I want to try to summarize it as briefly and as quickly as I can. We'll start with gap theory up top. The gap theory states that God created a fully functional earth prior to the one we live on now. Their theory is after God created the initial earth, something happened to destroy it. Most theologians who hold to the gap theory attribute the fall of Satan uh, to the earth's destruction, at which point the planet became, verse 2, without form and void, tohu and bohu. And at that point, God started all over again in verse 3 by recreating the earth in its paradise form as further described in Genesis, which then they say occurred in six literal days. The gap theory seeks to harmonize the biblical account of six literal days with an older view of the geological age of the earth, more of a modern science, if you will, or mainstream science. So therefore, the gap theory can account for fossil records and species such as dinosaurs and other creatures that are extinct. Basically, the gap theory says that the time or the gap between verses 2 and 3 accounts for the millions or billions of years before God recreated the earth that we live on now, which he did in six literal days, they say. So they get to double dip with young earthers and old earthers. You've got to pick a side. I'm just kidding. If you gap theory, that's fine. Uh, old earth creationists. Old earth creationists do not read the creation account as six literal 24-hour days. That doesn't mean they don't believe that God literally created the earth. It just means they don't believe in six literal days as a young earth creationist or even the gap theorists would believe them. Instead, they believe each creation day was a period of time that took longer than 24 hours. Old earthers, slang, typically agree with mainstream science, which says the earth is about four and a half billion years old and is based, again, on geological time scale, carbon dating, carbon dating, and other common dating methods. They also defend their position of an old earth by saying it would have taken longer than 24 hours to complete what God created on each day. For example... Genesis 1.11, God said, let the land produce vegetation. Let the land produce. Seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to the various kinds. And so the old earther says, in order for a seed to produce a tree, which produces fruit, that takes longer than 24 hours. <laughs> my, my, my green bell peppers I planted what, in May? They still haven't started growing yet, which I don't think is going to happen yet. Maybe old earthers are right. But, 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 but therefore, each creation day, they, they would say, they would look at things like that and say, hey, it had to take longer than the literal 24-hour period. Another argument that they have is along with, uh, in the Bible, it's a good, I mean, it's, it works. They say that the word day in Hebrew, it doesn't always mean a literal 24 hours. And that's true, it doesn't. 
Young earth creationists. I don't feel like it's fair for me to preach a sermon on the age of the earth and not reveal my hand. So I'm a young earther, just in case you're wondering. Um, but I'm okay if you're not. Anyway, young earth creationists believe that God created the universe in six literal days and that the earth is relatively young. They usually place the age of the earth around 6,000 to 10,000 years old. Young earthers point out that the book of Genesis is written as historical narrative, and therefore the creation account should be read as such. Young earth creationists often refer to themselves as biblical creationists because their position takes a direct, literal interpretation of the early chapters of Genesis, especially in regard to the word day. Young earthers' response to the meaning of the word day is that it normally means a 24-hour period when it's used. And when the Bible does refer to day as a period of time, the context is really about creation. One of their go-to verses in the Bible to support their young earth position and literal six-day, 24-hour creation is Exodus, who also, uh, which was written by Moses, and Moses also wrote Genesis. Exodus 20. Starting in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. It supports their position. I won't say it proves the position, but it does support the position. There, there, there's also, I, I, I loved listening to different guys this week who would be like, well, I'm a mathematician, not a theologian. Well, I'm a physicist. I'm a theologian. I'm a theologian, okay? So one of my issues that I would have if, if, if it was so old, how do you account for death for millions and billions of years when we're told that death doesn't enter until the sixth day or at least until Adam and Eve were created? So there's a theological issue that, you know, we have to work through. Doesn't mean I'm right, but that is another issue that uh, theologians bring up. We believe Adam and Eve are historical figures, and I think we should all hold to that. Now, those were as quick as I could summarize those positions, and, and if you hold to one of those and I didn't do position, uh, uh, justice to your position, or if I didn't announce or say your favorite arguments, um, that support your position, I apologize. But the purpose of me going through the different views about creation was not to persuade you about one over the other. That wasn't the point. The main point of sharing different views was to show you that those who hold opposing views, biblically speaking, are not opposed to God being the creator of the heavens and the earth. Which means wherever you land on the age of the earth, we should remember that the requirement of the Christian faith in regard to what we believe about creation has nothing to do with the actual age of the earth. I mean, the Bible doesn't actually say what the age of the earth is. So the doctrine that we as Christians must all affirm is one thing and be united that God created the heavens and the earth. And he did it by speaking it into existence. We must be united on that. 
Scripture supports that. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. That's power. And it's interesting to me how much we, not just young earthers, how much Christians, how much we undervalue the reality that Christians are not the only ones who, who have to have faith in, to believe their position, how the earth was created. Okay? We're not the only ones who have to answer questions that are, quite frankly, just unable to be answered. The, the Big Bang Theory is unable to provide answers to its objections as well. We're not the only ones who have to believe by faith. So there, anyone who believes in the Big Bang Theory has to exercise faith too. Because with the removal of God, they have to answer, and they have no answer, that can sufficiently explain how something came from nothing. They do not have an answer for that. I don't care how small, how tiny microscopic the matter was that fit into the tiny head of the needle before it exploded and created the entire universe in theory there is no adequate answer to explain where that matter came from. There is an adequate answer, but you have to insert God into the equation. The scripture may not provide us with all of the mathematics and physics in order to understand the creation of the universe. I support that. But the lack of that information... It does not disprove nor threaten the description as to how God created the earth. So, we agree God created the earth. I hope we agree God created the earth. Who created God? That's an odd title in a sermon for a second point. Most likely, if you've ever told a young child that God created the heavens and the earth, they inevitably up, end up asking you, but who created God? Right? It's a fair question. Right? Now hopefully you told nobody created God. He's just always existed. That is a timeless, pun intended, timeless truth. That God is eternal. He has no beginning nor end. Unlike us, he is not bound by space or time. In fact, not only is he not bound by time, Genesis 1.1 tells us that God created time. The Bible teaches that the one who's not bound by time or space is the one responsible for creating time and matter. And with the creation of time and matter, we have the history of the universe's beginning. We may not have the age of the earth, but we have the age of God. Eternal. That's his age. He's eternal. I know, I know it's easy to say God is eternal, but in reality, <laughs> even as we tell our kids, yeah, he's always existed. That's what the Bible says. He's eternal. The concept of, of eternity is that it's near impossible, if just not impossible, for us to actually wrap our heads around. Sigmund Freud couldn't. In fact, Freud said... People invented God and religion due to our fear of nature. R.C. Sproul writes about this in his book. This is where I'm taking this from. It's uh, in the holiness of God. 
He says, Freud believed we, humans, feel helpless before an earthquake, a flood, or a ravaging disease. Therefore, Freud said, we invented a God who had power over those. And we invented a God we could speak to and plea with, which is something we cannot do with natural disasters and uh, diseases. So therefore, he says, we invented God so we could deal with scary things. That's what Sproul, how he puts it. That's what Freud said. In his book, what Sproul points out in the Gospel of Mark, though, is an amazing observation and a worthy rebuttal to Freud's claim. In Mark 4, Sproul recalls the disciples and Jesus as they're on the Sea of Galilee and a terrible storm picks up. And we, and we read, the disciples became, they became afraid. They became afraid for their lives. So they, they woke up Jesus, <laughs> who's over in the corner taking a nap. Afterwards, Jesus gets up and says, hey, he, he, well, he doesn't say, hey, he rebukes the storms and the wind and the waves obey him. The storm disappears at Christ's command. And then what does the text say? Then the disciples became very afraid. Their fear escalated when Christ commanded the waves to stop, and they obeyed. Sproul's point being this, that, that while the storm scared the disciples, the calming of the storm created even greater fear for them <laughs> because they were in a presence, in the presence of a man who had the power to control nature. And so therefore, Sproul observes, if humans were going to create a God in order to help calm their fears over natural disasters and diseases, then why did they create a God who became even more terrifying than the nature itself? That's good. It's a good observation. Loved ones, it may be impossible for us to comprehend how God cannot have a starting point. But the Bible repeatedly, and I think unequivocally, expresses that God was, God is, and God always will be. While we can't visualize eternity as finite creatures, we can at least see in Genesis 1.1 that, that God is not bound by time or space. He's the one who created it. And when we look in Mark 4... We see that the one who created it also has the power to control it, to tell it what to do. At this point, you may be remembering I said the implications of God being the source of life and light should lead to something applicable for us. At this point, you might be like, when is he going to tell us what is, how this is applicable for our lives? How does God being eternal and the creator of all matter and time have any relevance for tomorrow morning when I wake up? I mean, outside of being faithful to the scriptures, why waste so much time on weighty matters such as these? I'm, I'm through my study this week, 
And in my own personal life, I'm convinced that the book of Job actually answers that question for us. How is this applicable? Are you familiar with Job? Do you remember his story? Job is the one who God allowed Satan, God allowed Satan to ruin his life by taking his family, taking all of his possessions and his health. Throughout the book of Job, following all of these afflictions, we're given a series of letters written back and forth between him and his friends. They try to convince him that he's done something wrong to deserve all of this suffering. And Job continually tries to justify himself. And and eventually, Job even says, no, God has acted unjustly toward me. And then in Job 38, God shows up. What's God's response to Job's suffering? Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, Job. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Job, tell me if you know all of this. It's a pretty intense conversation with God. It scares me every time I read it. I'm not a conversation. I'm not even sure it was a dialogue. I'm not sure you could speak. Think about it. God, think about this for a moment. God doesn't talk about what's fair, right? Nor does he quote a psalm to comfort Job's suffering. He doesn't say anything like this, like, just trust me, Job. I'm a God of love. I'm a God of goodness and patience. I'm humble and meek. You just got to hang in there, buddy. Don't worry. I've got a plan for your life. That stuff's all true, by the way. But he doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say anything like that. God looks at Job and says, you've got many words, Job, but you lack knowledge. I don't think we could insert culture into this sermon. I think I just found a spot. Many words without knowledge. Well, word that's we fit into that category, too. You've got many words, Job. You lack knowledge. Now stand up like a man and answer me. What what does he say? What do you know about creation? That's how he answers Job. Not, hey, I'm here for your suffering. I'm a God of love, blah, 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 blah. What do you know about creation? That is God's response to Job's suffering. What do you know about me as creator? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job believed his suffering was unwarranted and accused God of acting unjustly. Do we not? Why this affliction, Lord? What did I do to deserve this? Can't relate to that? 
God did not reveal his hidden plan to Job. He didn't say, well, I better, I better tell him something here. Instead, <laughs> all he told Job is the only thing you need to satisfy your doubt is to concede that my wisdom and my knowledge are unparalleled to your capability to comprehend. You need proof, Job? Look at my creation. That reality of, 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 of looking at physical creation and understanding that it took wisdom and knowledge in every detail, that, that reality should provide us with our application. It's what, it's what God is saying to Job. Because whenever things don't go our way, like Job, we should remind ourselves that, that, that God, who possesses the wisdom and knowledge to create the heavens and the earth, he also contains the wisdom and the knowledge to plan every minute detail of your life. Every single one of them. There's nothing that happened yesterday, today, or tomorrow that God is unaware of. Not one thing. The same God who put the amount of detail that we see in the design of the universe also put the same amount of detail into our lives. And I forget who said this. I told Keith I was going to quote it last week. I should, I should have figured out who said it if I thought about it. I forget who said it. I find this quote very comforting. I hope you do too. The, they said the, the God... I, I'm, paraphrase but the God who calls every star by name that's what the Bible says the Bible says God knows every star he placed every star he knows them by name the God who calls every star by name is in no danger of forgetting those who he calls his children anything God's forgotten about you look at the stars he knows every single one they were not made in his image loved one you were I think it was, I think it's John Lennox that said, if you want to know the worth of humans to God, then all you have to do is realize that he became one. Loved one, not only God is aware of your situation, your, your situation is part of his plan and creation can remind us of that. A final point. Christ is the light of the world. God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. The first day is my favorite day of creation for a few reasons. First off, day one just really shows off the magnitude of God's power because who else has the ability to just speak things into existence? And Paul says this in Romans 4.17. He calls into existence the things do not exist. He calls into existence the things that do not exist. Well, there's your answer to where did the matter come from? We... Again, we may have a different view about the age of the earth, but the way it came into existence was by the word of God. So I love that. Secondly, I love day one because it's the most puzzling day of creation. Yeah. Where does the light come from? 
What is the light? It ain't the sun. That doesn't arrive until day four. That's not the moon either. Also day four. Stars on day four. So what is it? Like the age of the earth, I can't make a, a, a definitive claim, but there, there are uh, some suggestions, suggestions that are fun uh, from church history. I'll just go through a couple. Basil, Caesarea said, God produced the essence of light on the first day and the body for on the fourth day. So in other words, the light generated on day one would eventually find its home enveloped in the sun on day four. I guess, I guess you could believe that it somewhat was the essence of that. I, I guess it's possible. It's nowhere near as fun as Augustine's belief. He said that the light on day one was actually the creation of angels. And he uses supporting verses such as Revelation 18.1, and he's got more. Uh, after this... I saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. So the earth can be lit up by an angel. Huh. Oh, I like it. He references more, but, but for time's sake, I'll move on. While this is my favorite attempt to explain the light on day one, I don't think it's correct, but it could be. And I love Augustine, so I'm fine getting that tattooed on me. Uh, ter- just <laughs> hey, babe. Uh, Tertullian, he believed the light was a manifestation of Christ's glory, pre-incarnation, which means before Christ entered time and space as a baby born through the Virgin Mary. Tertullian wrote, when the sun has not yet appeared, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, Genesis 1, verse 3, immediately there appears the word. That true light, which lights man on his coming into the world, John 1, 9. And through him also came light upon the world. I'm more inclined to this position. I do think it, it, it was a manifestation of God's glory, which shone forth unto the earth. I can't make a definitive decision for, for certain what it is or give it a definitive answer for certain. But we do know this, that the source of the light came from God himself. We do know that. Life and light come from God. He is the source of that. And it, a manifestation of God's glory. Paul and John tell us that the world was created through Christ, so... Tertullian's on to something, so, so it would seem appropriate that the light which shone upon the earth in Genesis is also the light of the one who would eventually come upon it in the Gospel of John. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, this is Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only 
came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. As I thought about this passage in Genesis 1 and the the parallel between Genesis 1 and John 1, there's an unfortunate parallel there. Between the two passages, we live in a society that is unwilling to recognize God as the source of light and life, a creation. And we also live in a society who is unable to recognize and refuses to accept that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. One of my mentors in seminary used to always say, you cannot have a doctrine of salvation without a doctrine of creation. And and the quote still confuses me and it's still try to, what did he mean by that? But here it makes sense. The parallel of Genesis 1 and John 1, it makes sense to have a doctrine of, you must have a doctrine of creation to have a doctrine of salvation because if a person will not acknowledge the reality that Christ has created them, then they will never come to the conclusion that he was also crucified for them. Which means if you reject Jesus as your creator, you will never know him as your savior. So we open up Genesis, and Genesis 1 says, the first light appeared so that we may see God's glory. And the Gospel of John says, but the light appeared once again so that we may see God's Son. Let me insert one thing before we end. The purpose that the one who lit up the world in Genesis came in John's gospel as the light of the world. His purpose to become a human was to do something that no other human, including all of you who sit here today and myself who preach here today, could do on our own. And that was remove the debt that we owe God because of the sin that we have committed against him. The Bible is clear to teach that there is a distinction between the creator and all of creation. And he is the just God. And he will return. And he will judge the wicked and the good. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, that's a problem when he returns. Because your bad will be judged. And you will face a penalty that is eternal for that. But if you embrace Christ Christ as your Savior, who went to the cross to receive your punishment, then you believe until he returns that he was judged for your bad. And you receive all of his good, all of his inheritance. But it starts all the way back in Genesis 1, doesn't it? If you don't believe God created the earth and Jesus, all things are made through him and for him, 
then you're going to have a big difficulty thinking that he came to this earth to die for your sins. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, these are topics that, that have a lot of work that have gone into them for centuries and millennia, Lord. And, and we do not possess your wisdom, and we do not possess your knowledge, but we do possess your word that says the church of Jesus Christ should be unified. And we must agree in the Lord. And while we may not have enough verdict yet on the age of this earth and universe, we do have the verdict that you're the one who created it. And God, I pray that we would be humble in how we approach those who may disagree with us. And I pray that most of all, we would believe and remember that the one who created it is also the one that came into it to die for our sins. God, we ask this to the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.